lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine claims millions, when justice... Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery, hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with New Abolitionist and actionist Johanna Nelaya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is May 18, 2016, and you are tuned into the Black Talk Radio Network. On tonight's broadcast, we welcome our guest, David Michael, Chief Executive Offer at Change the World, and today's acting spokesperson for Save the Kids Group.org during the fourth annual National Week Against Incarcerating the Youth. Once again, New Abolitionist Radio is a sponsor. We'll discuss the movement and the problem of youth incarceration as a whole. The who, what, where, why, and how of it all. I've been doing a hell of a lot of research today, and I have some things that may surprise you. We'll give you an up-to-date report on the Alabama prison strikes and the upcoming September 9th national prison strike. This movement is already causing major repercussions. If you are listening now and you have news on these movements, call in tonight after the interview. Brother Kinetic Justice conducted an interview himself on Democracy Now! recently while in solitary confinement for organizing prison labor strikes. The nuances of that entire presentation are mind-blowing. Brian Stevenson of the of Alabama is the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative and recently received an endowment of a million dollars from Google. His work as an abolitionist and human rights activist is stellar. But when asked directly in a public interview if he thought this was modern slavery, he avoided the answer and codified his language. I was kind of disappointed. Such codification for me seems to lead to marginalization and doesn't really help us to end slavery. We'll let you hear the interview and you can make your own decisions. A tale of two jails and two young deaths. That's what we have to share tonight. We want to go over some of the problems that we create when we decide who is worthy of life and who gets ignored and left to die without any attempts at justice. A rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Malcolm Bryant, who was recently released from prison after DNA evidence cleared him of a 1998 murder conviction. He was serving life in prison for a murder he did not commit. Our abolitionist in profile is John Mercer Langston, 1829-1897, abolitionist, politician, and attorney. If you have more stories from the field, we want you to call in and give us updates, especially regarding the upcoming national prison strike. Um, our number is one six four one seven one five three six six zero. The access code is five four nine zero three two pound. You can expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? Hey, how are you, Brother Max? Oh man, out of breath. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of breath, but I'm looking forward to the tonight. And I'm kind of excited, man, since the last time we spoke, uh, the season finale of Underground came out, and that was pretty that was pretty awesome. Got me going, what? i got to wait uh, almost a year for season two? 
I still have not been able to bring myself to watch it. Man, they brought Harriet Tubman in at the very end of it. So they're portraying some of our, our heroes in there and giving them the proper value and light, I think. You know, we again, I know how hard it is to get past that. I have the same uh, thing stopping me is why I didn't watch the butler and I didn't watch 12 Years a Slave. I tried to watch 12 Years a Slave but was so disgusted within the first 20 minutes I gave up. But this is something different. At least it is in my opinion. Yeah, I'm going to give it a watch. Um, hopefully it'll be on Netflix or something like that. Um, but um, I just, you know, just ain't been able to watch it yet. But I do have like this thing, man. To be honest with you, I very rarely watch anything involving black people on TV because, you know, our images are so misconstrued, so twisted, so, you know, just, man, and we're not in control of them. So I I don't even bother, man. I don't even bother to watch anything involving black people on television. I just don't. If it ain't the news, I ain't watching it on, on TV. You're trying to avoid disappointment is what you're saying? Well, just trying to avoid unnecessary trauma and stress in my life. I don't, you know, it's just so much that I have seen, um, you know, that, that just makes me angry as a person who understands the power of media and how it is being utilized to support uh, slavery human trafficking to also portray the victims as deserving of slavery and human trafficking um you know the stereotypes and i i'm just i'm just don't want to you know um uh get frustrated watching something that it is you know not really going to edify me um in any kind of way but uh you're right there are exceptions um, you know, I very rarely, I haven't been to a movie theater in probably 25 years, man. Um, but I do watch movies online. And I have seen a couple of movies, man, that I felt like was worthy of, of, of people watching, like The Purge, especially The Purge 2, you know, because of uh, just the... Uh, the the message in that in that film and um i just feel like you know that's one of the things they working towards is depopulation and and also you know in that particular movie it showed how the police was behind a lot of the crime and stuff like that so i'm just very cautious about what i let into my spirit but since you know you giving this movie such, I mean, this uh, TV series such a strong recommendation. I will put it on my to-do list. Cool. Best I could ask for. I'm hoping Johanna comes in soon because I would love to hear his opinion on it, you know, because me and him have been watching it. He got in, I think, by about the third episode and then went backwards and started from the beginning again. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very exciting. Um, today, man, you know, depression sets in when you deal with what I've been dealing with today, just researching what's going on with our children. You know, I, I'm familiar to a large degree of the school of prison pipeline, the youth detention facilities, the youth in the immigration facilities and stuff like that. <clears throat> but, you know, I like to dig even deeper sometimes and I did that today and found out so many different things, like how this whole, uh, according to at least one uh, narrator, this whole for-profit prison industry began with juvenile detention facilities. 
I don't know if you had heard that or not, but apparently, according to the Bureau of Justice Assistance, uh, they say that the 1970s ushered in a new phase of development of private corrections, beginning with juvenile corrections operations. And in 76, RCA Services, a private company, assumed control of the Weathersville Intensive Treatment Unit located in Northampton, Pennsylvania. The facility was designed to handle male delinquents, although the private sector had long been involved in providing a wide range of correctional services. This was the first modern institution for serious offenders to be completely operated in what has become an increasingly lengthy line of such institutions in the American correctional system. So in other words, that school to prison pipeline started during the Nixon administration. Uh, um, apparently in the 80s, uh, too, was when the second facility came out. So it, the groundwork, just like it was now, was laid during the Nixon administration and then exploited afterwards with the Reagan and Clinton administration. They say that that one institution was the only one until the next one came out in 1982 when the state of Florida founded the operation of the Okeechobee uh, School for Boys over to the Eckhart Foundation. And uh, that was the second one. Now there's 40,000 youths in private facilities. Right. So it's just been a steady march, man. I mean, uh, it's just crazy. You know what, though? I think another person who deserves to get a lot of blame or attention or whatever you want to call it, negative press, about the crime bill during the Clinton administration. Al Gore is the one that wrote that damn bill. Did you yeah, know that? He should get some attention, but he ain't running for president. But he certainly should go down with the rest of them when we have our Nuremberg-like trials. And just think. And we hold these people accountable. And just think, you know, it wasn't that long ago where black folks was lining up to vote for Al Gore and and got disenfranchised in that 2000 election. But my reason for bringing that up is just to show you just how uninformed different voting blocks are, you know, because I, I really did not notice that about Gore, even though I wasn't going to vote for the dude anyway. I think I might have voted for Nader that year. So if y'all want to blame me for Bush, go right ahead. I don't give a damn. Uh, but, but, you know, uh, uh, yeah, man, he really does not uh, get the attention he deserves for the role that he played in modern slavery. And here we are in 2016, and plenty of people want to ignore the role of Hillary Clinton. Like, ain't none of that happened, you know. So, I you know, we, you. we all who are part of this nation to some degree or another play a role in modern slavery and human trafficking. Some of us far more conscious than others with far more uh, far-reaching repercussions and effects, uh, like Hillary Clinton uh, and Al Gore uh, and people like that. But we all play uh, some role to some degree. You know, just by paying your taxes, you're paying for prisons. I mean, you ain't got to do nothing other than that, and you're a participant. But I ain't paying taxes willingly, though. They taking it. Word, word. <laughs> 
Well, we got our guests uh, come, should be calling in. I told them about 820. We'll bring them in, uh, David, Michael, today. And I know I was listening to your program on uh, Black Talk Radio where you did the uh, an interview with him and Anthony as well as a few, a whole panel, actually. It was a really good yeah, interview. Yeah, it was. Uh, um, very insightful. Um, and it gave me a chance to avoid repeating questions, you know what I mean, to ask some new things. Cool, cool. Yeah, um, Ahmed Washington, who's a professor at the University of Kentucky, uh, of course, Anthony Nocella, longtime friend of New Abolitionist Radio, member of the New Abolitionist Movement, longtime advocate in juvenile justice, and um, um, uh, Mr. Uh, Michael, what's his last name again? I forget. Oh, you're talking about David Michael. David Michael, I'm sorry. Yeah, David. Yeah, I, uh, yeah that was um, a very informative interview uh, that those right. guys gave. And, and, and I think... Professors. Uh, Anthony, I believe, is a criminal justice professor. Yes, he teaching. is. Yes, he, he is. is. Um, it, it, so these are people who know what they're talking about. Again and again, uh, everything we tell you is just gets confirmed by people who know what they're talking about. You know, anybody that takes time to figure this out can see that this is modern-day slavery and human trafficking, and it keeps falling down to social control and profit. You know, uh, capitalism plus racism equals what? America (laughs) (laughs) slavery right there that's it you would capitalize on the person or people that you hold these uh, racist views towards well yeah so I'm looking forward to that man Um, and as I said just so much research that I found out today and I'll probably talk about some of it with David, uh, Ahmad, Ahmad was supposed to be coming on as well. He was one of your guests uh, last Friday, the 13th, and unfortunately he had a death in the family. So our condolences uh, go out to you and your family in dealing with this. I understand what you're yes, going sir. through, brothers. We're losing too many of us these days. Yeah. Question, Max, uh, what line will they be calling us on? Uh, it'll be from the conference line. Okay. If you if you're on the conference line, you you're, you're our guest for tonight. Just press star six and one to queue up, and then later on in the evening, the listeners can do the same. If you're already on the conference line, just press star six and one to queue up, ask a question, make a comment. Well, we still got about five minutes before they're scheduled uh, to join us. Um, but Max, you did you have an opportunity to see the video? and uh, um, slash article that I produced on Hillary Clinton's millions invested in private, uh, uh, excuse me, in modern day slavery, corporations and what have you, man. And Yes, uh, sir, I did. I see you did your research on uh, the Vanguard group. The Vanguard group uh, is the people who also uh, held the monies that that former Vice President Dick Cheney invested in private prisons when he was indicted in Texas on charges of racketeering, if you remember that. Him and Alberto Gonzalez, because Dick Cheney had $80 million invested in the Vanguard Group, who was one of the chief uh, owners of private prison stocks. But of course that prosecution failed failed through because we don't have justice we only have injustice where uh crooks who commit high crimes and misdemeanors uh as long as they got political connections and whatnot well they don't get uh put into slavery for their crimes and, and what have you but yeah man um you know i came across an article on the hill that was focusing on donald trump 
and I'm very interested in digging into his financials. But as I stated, um, we already know he supports private prisons. You know, uh, Hillary Clinton, only after being confronted about her private prison money in her campaign, did she say she will end private prisons? Well, I just don't simply believe her, Max. When I found uh, from that same article that she was invested in the Vanguard 500 index, and I looked at all the companies within that index, and quite a few of them were very familiar to me uh, from their use of using prison slave labor, like AT and T, like Verizon, or invested in private prisons, like Wells Fargo, like Bank of America. Um, some of those companies, she actually got paid uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to speak to them, and you know, with these private speeches that aren't, you know, uh, privy to the public and what have you. So. Uh, everybody's focusing on D- Donald Trump, and don't get me wrong, Donald Trump, I think, is a very dangerous man uh, with with some very dangerous ideals. Obviously, we heard from his own mouth that he supports modern slavery because he supports private prisons. But for people to act like Hillary Clinton is so much better than Donald Trump when this woman has uh, from from um, the Hill article up to twenty five million invested in the Vanguard 500 index fund. You know, about a year ago, I was uh, very concerned with the conflict of interest I was seeing with these investments. The teachers union investments in particular set me off. So I wanted to see who, when it came to politics, was actually invested in the private prison construction and the private prison industry as a whole. Uh, I, I found out that Dick Cheney had all this money going on. I found out that attorney generals had major investments in. I even went and seen if Barack Obama had any money in the Vanguard group. And he, uh, surprisingly so, was the one I couldn't find any investments on. I'm not saying he doesn't have any, but I couldn't find them. On him, but just about everyone else I researched who had public investments had investments in these private prison firms, and uh, I don't. I'm pretty sure that a lot of them don't even realize it, and that's what's happening. That's how how these investment firms can do these unethical things, and you make money on it because they're your buffer. They don't have to tell you where the money came from. They just give you your printout every year. Say, here's your cash. Are you happy? Yes. But very much like what we're dealing with with the unions today, uh, fighting for $15 an hour, we're undercutting ourselves by purchasing goods and service bought from uh, countries like Haiti and Mexico and, and uh, over in Asia, in the continent of Asia, Indonesia in particular, or uh, Philippines that are being created or uh, manufactured for pennies on the dollar. The same goods and services that we're trying to get $15 an hour to, to do. So it's really us shooting ourselves in the foot over and over and over again. Anyway, that was a little ramble for me, man. I've been spending way too much time thinking as of late, you know. Uh, I haven't been able to get out much, so thinking is is one of my pastimes. I just want to remind uh, our scheduled guest, um, um, once you call in, please hit star six and one so I can identify your number and unmute you and bring you into the program. Um, I guess uh, Johanna's still running late tonight. Uh, probably 
um, you know, haven't made it home from work yet, but certainly we'll look forward to hearing from him later. Um, Max, we got an area code 954. This may or may not be our uh, scheduled guest. Well, let's, let's bring him in and let's see. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. This is Max Potters and Sky Reed. Uh, who are we speaking to? Davis from out of Miami, Florida, uh, with Save the Kids from incarcerating the youth. Peace, Brother David. Uh, welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, and welcome back to the Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, we're just listening to your interview from last week. As a matter of fact, I was telling Scotty about that and uh, trying to avoid repeating some of the questions um, and maybe going different directions today. Uh, I, I, I've been... Go ahead. No, I said okay. No problem. Yes, and I can see, as you said earlier, when I first warned you during the conference call that we had with the... Uh, uh, Week National Week to of uh, ending youth incarceration or uh, preventing youth incarceration. I warned you that we would be talking about it as if it were slavery, and you were like, "Yo, we already on the same page." And when I heard that interview, I was like, "Yeah, we already on the same page." Word, word. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, perspective is everything. I think, and and that's where we run into we run afoul of a lot of mainstream is because our narrative of this being slavery turns it into a crime, not something that can be reformed or done by mistake over time, but a crime in the act of the criminal uh, perpetuating. And you have to act differently, think differently, and react to it in a different way when you have that perspective. That's very true. Very true. Perspective is everything. And one of the main problems that we have with, uh, you know, the the media, a.k.a. the television, you know what I'm saying, what winds up happening is uh, subconsciously we just, it, it's just so much um, underlining racism, things that they consistently produce in the music and um, even down to commercials and how they allow us to how should I put this? Can I can I curse? Like can I I, I can speak fluently on this show? Um, Scotty is our executive director. I'm no fan of censorship. I would say if it fits, use it. But with Scotty has the final word. Okay, Scotty, cool. You there? Yeah, uh, we don't we don't do censorship, but also we try to be family friendly at the same time. Okay, okay, cool. Because I, I, the reason why I ask that is because when I you know when I take off, I take off, and you know what I'm saying so. A couple of customers might go in there into the all of us here. <laughs> you know, but uh, I try to keep it. I, I'll, I'll keep it light. You know. Um, you know, just in case there are children listening or or adults that have children and they happen to be listening to this program as a family, peace and love to all that are out there listening. But um, yeah, for the most part, it's 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 underlining of just <clears throat> a racist, uh, systematic way of how they have consistently been doing things since the beginning it seems like the beginning of time since our ancestors got here you know and one of the main problems that we have is we just let it slide as a whole like how I said on the other show you know the problem is there's too 
much complacency. There's too much of um, us just allowing these things to happen, watching these things happen, and feeding our minds with the garbage that they are producing. You know, and one of, and one of the main things as of right now is um, these reality TV shows. I read last year um, an article that it was like, I think it, it said 15 to 20% of students when asked if they had to, you know, watch, when they watch these shows, if they felt like, you know, is this something, is this the way that they're supposed to act in the real world? And most of the, and, and you know, I think it was like 15 to 20%. If not, don't quote me, but if not, I think it was more. They all said, yeah, like, they feel that they have to act this way in order to make it somewhere in the real world, like once they get out of school. And I was just like, what? Like, this is ridiculous, you know? Now, um, them not understanding just because of, you know, it says reality TV show, you know, they don't understand that majority of the people that are moving this way, if not all, they're acting. That's all they're doing because they don't live like that. In, in real life because if they did a lot of them would be arrested a lot of them would be trumped up on charges for using drugs and, 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 and fighting and so on and so forth threats you know I mean it's, it's ridiculous you know this is a very nuanced situation when it comes to our, our, our media and our entertainment and our arts and our culture uh, when, when it comes to the media, for instance, we know that uh, it's owned primarily by, what is it, six corporations, if not three now, uh, major corporations that are feeding just about the entire world what it is they want them to hear. And we know that there's always going to be sellouts, always. People willing to sell their very soul for fame and fortune. It just happens. And if somebody's willing to give someone who has nothing everything they could possibly dream of to uh, speak these evils into place, there are those who will accept it. Just like if someone decides to bring guns and drugs into Chicago via the DEA and the Sinaloa crime gang, there are people who are going to sell those drugs and guns to make that money. So the, a lot of the blame, it's hard to put all of the blame in, on the people the individual artist, yes, because you get a chance to make a decision. We've made that decision. My family has had to make that decision in our arts life. You get a chance to make a decision, and you get to choose right from wrong. And if you choose wrong, I mean, what what, what can we say at that point? They know they're choosing wrong. Right. Right. And, and you know, um, one thing that uh, I, I hear consistently that is not true at all when it comes to our our media, and this is just one aspect of it because you know it's it's a combination of just uh, a list of things that that make up and shape the mentality of what our children are facing today and mm -hmm. how they're moving as far as our, you know, the quote-unquote culture. Because, you know, these kids believe that this is, the, the individuals that they're watching, whether it's actors or singers or rappers, mainly rappers, um, that are glorifying specific 
uh, things as far as what a black man and black woman should be. Mm-hmm. What's going on is, um, you know, they think that they're stupid, you know, or, or they mm-hmm. came from the streets and, you know, they, they grew up rough and uh, so on and so forth. And then when you look at, when you look at the, the storyline of these artists, majority of the time that's not the case a lot of them have degrees a lot of them went to college a lot of them grew up in 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 areas that what they're talking about on record they never lived a day in their life you know and they're just running around parading this um this this image because it sells cb4 right 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 the gustos yeah (laughs) Uh uh-huh yeah, you know, so I mean, Future just came um, a couple of months ago. He, you know, uh, this artist Future, he he made a prime example of that, and you know, he has uh, this theme that he's doing now that he's been doing for a while. That you know, he 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 raps uh, consistently about drinking uh, lean syrup, uh, purple rain, you know, and. Um, he came out and he was like, he did an article and, and I guess the the reporter asked him, like, if you do this on a regular basis, and he said, I don't do drugs, period. I'm just rapping this way because that's what's in right now, that's what the kids are doing, and you know, it sells records. That's it, you know? So, you know, when when you hear people say that, like you, like you were saying, you know, it's evil because you're deceiving the people you're you're literally intentionally deceiving folks into believing um in a specific life moving a specific right. way so you can gain whatever selfish uh gain that you're going to be getting getting from you know which you just, in this case is money you just described the uh you just described the prosperity preacher industry and the po- political landscape all tied together because they do the same thing. Uh, these prosperity preachers, literally, I put them in the same rank as I would slavers because they're doing the same thing slavers would do. Instead of taking well, your body, they're taking your spirit and stealing your mind. But, and uh, it. but also, though, um, and we need to take a break, but I also wanted to just piggyback off of what he said about the deception. But just think about the level of deception to convince an entire nation that slavery was abolished in 1865 when its own constitution in the 13th Amendment shows that to be a bald-faced, blatant lie. So, I mean, think mm-hmm. about the level of deception. You got have to have participation from from the people in the political theater, participation from the people in the entertainment theater, like Steven Spielberg and his movie Lincoln and, uh, and all of that. I, I mean, the level of deception on the abolishment of slavery, I, I, I think is unprecedented in the history of media or to propaganda. Credit, during that period, there weren't that many schools as there are today, and not as many people were literate as they are today uh, by comparison. So that was a big stepping stone that they used at that period. We don't have so much of that problem during this period. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back after these messages. Black Talk Radio Network is made possible in part with help from the Black Talk Media Project. 
a North Carolina-based nonprofit engaged in the production and distribution of independent digital black media. Find out more by going to blacktalkradionetwork.com or blacktalkmediaproject.org and look for the menu tab, Crowdfunding Black Media. Black Talk Media Project, helping to provide you with new black media for the new millennium. to Black Talk Radio, new black media for the new millennium. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. We're here today with our guest, David Michael, from uh, Save the, representing SaveTheKidsGroup.org today and the National Week Against Incarcerating Youth. And we're doing our part to educate people on just what's happening to our kids. Uh, I'd like to put out some facts there so some of the listeners can understand what we're talking about. When we say the school to prison pipe pipeline, we really should be saying the womb to prison pipeline because that's how it goes. Uh, for instance, did you know that 50% of all the children in foster care systems right now are black and Latino, yeah, despite the fact that we only make up a small percentage of the population? Also, 30% of foster care youths entering the juvenile justice system are place or are placement related behavioral cases. 25% of young people leaving foster care will be incarcerated within a few years after turning 18. 25%, it's like an expectation. 50% of young people leaving foster care will be unemployed within a few years after turning 18. And 70% of inmates in California state prison are former foster care youth. 70% of the inmates in California state prisons are former foster care youth. So it's the direction and a path we put them on before they're even born. When it comes to schools, 40% of students expelled from U.S. schools each year are black. 70% of students involved in school arrests or referred to law enforcement are black and Latinos. 70%. Three and a half times. Black students are three and a half times more likely to be suspended than whites. And two times. Blacks and Latino students are twice as likely not to graduate high school as whites. 68% of all males in state and federal prisons do not have a high school diploma. So a lot of this uh, problem with lack of education and lack of access to education seems to be something that has been done by design to create this population that we have today. What do you think of those statistics, David? Um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I really don't know. I really don't know what uh, to say. Um, me personally, hearing that, it kind of infuriates me due to the fact that you know, it, it it just shows that the system is pure trash and it's only getting worse. As time progresses, things are only getting worse. And what's going to wind up eventually happening is it's going to be so crowded and so overfilled with individuals like this when it's time, when they when they wake up, if they ever wake up and realize, like, okay, this is a problem, um, we need to fix this. They first off, they're not going to know where to start, and then second, you know, 
that's just going to be an excuse for them not to do anything because of so many people going through that 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 channel you know and one of the main things that is happening consistently again is babies having babies because that's the majority of the time when you when you hear the age of the 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 um of the mother that had uh this the child it's very young and it's getting younger i mean they have a a, a show called teen moms you know where where teens are are being watched raising babies you know and it, it's just ridiculous it's utterly ridiculous i have to say though we remained at 13% or less, hovering around 13% of the population since we got here, it seems. So uh, whatever way it takes, apparently we're trying to keep at 13%. We are, I believe most recent was 12.7% of the population right now. We're about the only population that doesn't go upwards or even downwards like that. It seems like someone is keeping us at 13%. Right, and um, it's a it's a correlation of things, which is diabetes, high blood pressure, brothers killing other brothers, you know, um, uh, you know, <laughs> drug overdose. I mean, ah, oh, man. Then there's the it's idea like, of taking one and a half million men out of their societies. That can have some very bad impacts as well, particularly generational right. impacts. Right, uh, we were discussing right. this recently in uh, a conversation that we had here where it seems like we're uh, not leaving anything to our children except the chance to start all over from scratch. And that seems to be hereditary. It's like we always get to start with nothing over and over and over again. And we're not leaving behind any generational wealth. It's an escalator going down based on those stats. And on the other side of the spectrum, there's an escalator going up with all the privileges that are applied to that. Right, because you know when when you, when you take a people and uh, you you chain them as as another race and, or a couple of races advance in in a society that we live in today, that unfortunately that's what winds up happening because you know they have a full head start. They had a full head start from the very beginning, and. Now what we are seeing is the after effects of um, what they began to do back then with our ancestors. And they have integrated this mentality into the minds of, you know, basically all of us. Um, and it's so deep-rooted that we feel that that's the way it is. And then earlier you were talking about sellouts. And what wind up happening is when the individuals that do make it out of that that uh poverty level or just make it you know you you notice consistently that what winds up happening is they begin to act like the oppressor because this is how the oppressor acts, you know, and so they subconsciously feel that that's how they have to act because. That's just the way it is. And you see this a lot, too, with folks that aren't even at that level yet, but have, like, a little money or, or, or have some type of uh, steady financial gain, and they, they wind up taking on 
basically the European mindset of white supremacy. Now, I'm not speaking just for all the white listeners. I'm not speaking as far as uh, the race as a whole. I'm talking about white supremacy because you have a lot of individuals out there that that are black and Latino or Latina that move the same exact way. Yes. Uh, consciously or subconsciously, you know, without without actively realizing what they're doing, you know. So, we, you know, when we speak about these things, we're not speaking about a specific race because Marcus Garvey said it best: all black people ain't gonna be ain't no good here, and they're not gonna be good when they when he was doing the Back to Africa movement, you know. So. I mean, it's just it's just one of those things where we have to educate ourselves on our history, where we come from, what happened prior to us um, coming over here from slavery, and why things are the way it is today. Because if we don't do that, what will happen is we will continue to repeat the same destiny over and over again like you said the generational curse you know and this is happening too much and you know to some degree when when you hear about crime and you hear about individuals doing crime children doing horrendous acts of crime whether it's going breaking into somebody like breaking into somebody's house and and armed kidnapping and all these things when you when you sit down with one of these children and you ask them hard facts and questions you know when they when when you when you when they get when you get the answer it's you know they needed the money or they didn't have anybody to take care of them they didn't know where to start so what winds up happening is that's what you know, that's what they're forced to do. That's what yeah, they feel that they're forced situations. to do. We put, we put them in hopeless situations. We just recently found out that America has the uh, the third uh, largest child poverty rate in the industrialized world right now. And 30, I believe it was 33% of those children in poverty are African American, which is just ridiculous. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And you put these children into these positions of hopelessness with very little uh, expectations and very little outlets to find a way out, and then you expect them to succeed and call it some kind of American dream, when truly all you're doing is take away, taking away from them any opportunities that they may have had. And I'm speaking from experience. Uh, you know the, the Lean On Me movie about Eastside High School? That was our high school during the time of Bill Clark. You know, so I know where I'm coming from and what happened with that type of environment. Yo, um, Johanna has joined us. We do want to uh, welcome him in and give him an opportunity to join well, the podcast. Johanna, uh, you're here with David Michaels representing the Save the Kids group.org today and the National Week Against Incarcerating Youth. Right on, right on. Peace, peace. Thank you for welcoming me in. I apologize for being so late and, and missing so much of the interview. Welcome, brother. Dude, we'll, do, we'll do it as long as we need to do it. Remember when I had to go through all of the uh, bad microphone circumstances? Right. Oh, man. So we'll put up what we have to do, man, to get the message out there. Uh, right. Do you have any questions that you'd like to ask, David? Well, I haven't heard enough of what he was saying. I don't want to ask something he already talked about, so I'm going to let him keep flowing. Right. 
Well, we have about 10 minutes left in the interview, and, and I would like to ask one question. For me, and this is me personally, when I think of what our youth face on a daily basis, the face that embodies that for me is Khalif Browder. Khalif Browder was uh, doing well in school and was arrested on an allegation, never given a charge, kept in an adult prison for three years where he was put into solitary confinement where he was uh, tortured, abused by guards, which is on video, and potentially, possibly molested. When he was finally released without so much as a I'm sorry or any explanation why he had been incarcerated for three years and couldn't get out, um, he committed suicide within the first two years of him being out. Because he just couldn't take that life anymore. And this is what our children face every single day. So when I think of what we're there facing in why we need to stop incarcerating our youth. Philippe Browder is an example, particularly in New York State, where the cost to incarcerate him is $353,000 a year, which tells you why they arrested him right off the bat. You already know. $353,000 a year to arrest a then 16-year-old boy who wasn't worth two nickels, but the moment you put your hands on him, he was worth $353,000. So for three years, he generated almost a million dollars in profit for these people and then ended up losing his life. That was murder. Uh, what do you think of the Cleese Browder case, and what exemplifies the problems that our children face today for you? Well, with, and I, I know about that particular case very well because um, I watched an interview that he, he had um, before he died when he was speaking about the situation that happened to him. And, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, this also ties in to on, on a community level as well because what winds up happening is there's a lot of children that are running around out here. Now I'm talking specifically about our neighborhoods, which uh, are formerly known as the hood, you know? And um, what winds up happening is we don't look out for each other. You know, we, we, we left when I was growing up, I'm, I'm 29 years old. And when uh, I was growing up, you know, it was, it was a different, uh, era back then you know it was it was slowly changing but it did not change yet and what was going on was we had neighbors i had neighbors that when we played outside we 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 watched you know each other we looked out for each other you know if something was wrong if 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 something didn't look right you know we told an adult and the adult took care of that or the adults took care of that you know so um, I feel that we need to get back to, you know, the, the, the raising, you know, it takes a child to raise the village because I guarantee you if there were some strong brothers, men that were securing the neighborhood, making sure everything was all right in the neighborhood and being on point with where they're at, where they live consistently, I don't feel that um, situations like that brother that, that 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 was in New York would have happened, and other situations that take place. But we've become so complacent once again with the mentality of you know oh you know I don't know them I'm not friendly so you know 
fend for yourself kind of mentality, you know, that, that these things happen on a consistent basis, you know, and it's sad. And the mindset of, uh, of children nowadays, when you talk to them, it's like they feel that they don't have um, any other choice but to commit specific actions when they get into certain situations. You know, a fight's not a fight anymore. Somebody has to pull a gun because they're not trying to lose. They're, and if they're in the streets, you know, it's considered street credit for some. You know, and and it's an abnormal way of behaving, and they don't understand that this is, you know, the the after effects of the enemy. This is what William Lynch uh, predicted what would happen when he made that speech to all those slave masters on that Virginia beach, you know, that day. Brother, if I uh, definitely want to want to just stand up for that right there because you just said a lot I mean you put you put it into a, a brilliant perspective and and I just really want for people to be able to meditate on that like understand that it's that we need to stand up we need to you know just like this the theme music to this program come on talking about rise up I mean we've got to protect our own neighborhoods but I also have to to understand the fact and respect the fact that you know deep science has been applied to the methods you know, and techniques of the police state terrorism that has gone on for decades in our hoods. So, I mean, our people have fought, and when the last time we really did fight, um, you know, was was during the uh, COINTELPRO era, and during the time when folks were getting jailed and are still in prison, political prisoners, and people were bombed, like the Pool family. I mean, you know, on and on. It's been shown to us what the response is going to be to any hint of dissent, you know, let alone mobilization. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of a difficult situation. I, I I feel like in the abolitionist movement that we really have an opportunity to speak technically to the issues that cause these problems, but also speak, um, I, I guess I want to say emotionally, like like get the, get the emotion, you know, uh, raised in the community based on the fact that we have facts that can support what we're saying and start to mobilize based on that. But I wondered, you know... How can we get people to want to go against police state terrorism as as they've known it? I mean, that's all police have been in this country. Good question. Um, what I what has been successful in my neighborhood? What I've um, chosen to do was I I walk around. I I knocked on everybody's door and I basically shot them facts and I asked I one question that I asked is. Um, based off of what I just mentioned about William Lynch, I asked him, do you know who William Lynch is? Uh, some would say no. Some would say yes, I have an idea. Some would know what time it is, and that would be that. But for the ones that say yes, but I'm not sure, or the ones that say no, I would also ask the question, well, that means that if you don't know who he is and what he's done, that means nine times out of ten, you know, you're you you're following what he's talking about. And when that happens, it's like, well, what do you mean? Like, what, what you talking about? You know, depending on the, the, the person and their character, you know, some people might get offensive. And then that's when I break um break down the the aspect of the William Lynch letters and put it into modern day times, you know, because 
everything damn near word for word that that man said we're seeing it we are seeing it our we you know we we are living breathing and witnessing it you know and he was completely right and when you give people facts and you start educating people because it's going to take the ones that know to educate the ones that don't know you know and and a lot of times I've heard plenty of times that, you know, oh, let them sleep, let them, let them, you know, let them com- remain blind, and that's it. But that's, that's BS, you well, know what I'm saying? Just for the huh? sake of legitimacy, the Willie Lynch letter, as we know it, very likely was written after the fact with hindsight. But that doesn't make it any less applicable as to what it was saying was going on during that time. Um, I don't... As far as I know, there was no actual uh, plantation owner out of the West Indies by the name of Willie Lynch. But it's, it's, it's certainly uh, something that applies psychologically in how they uh, treat people. Yeah. You know, um, it, and it's, it's crazy because what was written, you know, I, and I've heard that too, you know what I'm saying, as far as the, uh, a slave owner not being present. You know, but as far as what was uh, written, you know, it is playing. It is playing out today, and it is a major uh, problem that we have. And one of the things we have to do is, to, you know, when once I once you have the statistics in front of people's faces and they see like the statistics that they themselves are a part of, it changes their perspective on things. You You're know, because her, right? Yes, sir. Are you aware that all of the juvenile detention facilities in Florida are privatized? 100% yes, sir. Yes. yes, sir, I do. Matter, matter of fact, I was, I was once there myself, so I, I know. And I was, and I did, as an adult, I did eight years in um, the state penitentiary. So, you know, during that time from 2006 to... Um, 2014 when I was released I it slowly but surely they began to privatize the prisons that we were in you know and um, it was a different like you saw the, the difference in the mentalities of the people that were in control because a lot of things began to change as far as the programs um, being took, taken away and put into other things. So as far as surveillance and higher advanced technology to, to watch us, that way they, there were um, less shifts, you know, for, for people to, to move and, and work in. And when, when they start, when they began to cut the shifts, you know, people began to take their frustrations out on the inmates, you, don't- you know, uh-huh. You're right there at ground zero when it comes to the GEO Group, who has its base of operations in Florida. And the GEO Group originally was started by the Wackenhut Corporation, and in 1998 is when the Wackenhut Corporation opened the Gina Juvenile Justice Center for Boys in Louisiana. Now, they also own the private juvenile detention facilities in Florida that they're running right now, and they're infamous for their human rights violations that have been occurring throughout the state of Florida when it comes to the juvenile detention facilities, up to the point where there was a 14-year-old girl recently 
who was raped almost nightly by the uh, guards within one of these juvenile detention facilities and had to go against the entire company, this one little 14-year-old girl versus a $2 billion company, the Wackenhut Corporation. And we can also find that the Wackenhut Corporation got its start from the Clinton's crime bill. Their right. stock multiplied 10 times between 1994 and 1998. And as you can see, 1998 is when they began their juvenile detention facilities for profits. I think right. we should call it the well, Clinton-Gore crime bill since Gore wrote <laughs> most of it. There you go, Clinton Gore crime bill. We're, we're running up on the top of the hour, man, and uh, we've had some great conversation here, and I do want to continue it at another time. But we, we have to, uh, a couple of stories, and I want to give you an opportunity to tell us uh, how we can help, how anybody can help with SaveTheKidsGroup.org or the National Week of Incarcer uh, Against Incarcerating Youth, uh, what people can do to contribute. Um, if they want to donate time or resources or money, who do they contact and so on? Well, um, if you want to help as far as with the National Week of Action, you can go online to savethekids.org and... Savethekidsgroup.org? Yes, savethekids.org. And um, there, there are, on the website, there is uh, specific areas where you can go and do those things and somebody will contact you based off of what you are trying to provide. Um, as far as, you know, helping out on a consistent basis, because we all know it's not going to end in, you know, one week. This is something that we have to do every single day. We have to live it, we have to breathe it, and we have to be it. You know, these children are our future and 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 as far as an an adult goes we have to protect regardless if that's your if that's not your child or not if you see a child going through something talk to them um connect with them don't be so so quick to judge you know because one of the main things that I hear all the time from, especially from the older generation, is that, you know, these jitterbugs out here are wild. You know, these, these young kids don't have no respect. Well, where do you think the, the, um, them not respecting you comes from? Because you don't respect them, you know, and you're not talking to them. And they know that. These kids that are running around, you know what I'm saying, are, are, aren't stupid. It's just that they might be misguided or, or have no guidance here and there, depending on what kind of family background they're coming from. You know, you talk to them, you know, help them instead of uh, being so quick to, to put them down. Word, man, word. Well, make sure you guys visit the website, contribute time, effort, and donations if you can. Uh, you can also take the banner that they use and make that your uh, Facebook uh, profile pic or, or banner pic. They have those available just to show that you're in solidarity. It's only a week long. If you can't do it for a week, how the hell are you going to do it for a lifetime? And we need you to do it for a lifetime because, as I said, the children are our future. Speaking of, did you get an opportunity to see the video uh, that we created, The Cost of Living, that laid out the cost of what it takes to incarcerate kids? And what did you think of it if you did? Um, that that was uh, very informative. I I did see the video and I shared it, and I tagged a bunch of people 
online um, for them to see the video as well. And it's it's just sad, you know. It it's it's sad because, like like the brother said earlier, slavery is not over. It's far from over. Um, even in the Constitution, it states that if you do get locked up, you're you know prone to slavery, to being enslaved. You know, when I was when I was incarcerated, I did fifteen to twenty dollar hour jobs that I can't get out here. You know, because of my background. You know what I'm saying? And I did those jobs for free. You know, and and one of the the main problems is you have so many youth running around with talents. Uh, you know, of abundance. They 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 have so many gifted talents that they they've learned or they've um applied themselves to do but because of no opportunities for them to utilize that they go back to what they know and that's another issue too that you know we need to deal with and I know we're we're pressed for time but we'll talk about that maybe another time oh yeah we we hope to have you back on uh we're going to continue to support this movement uh, for as long as we need to until our people are free. Uh, it really is just as simple as that. 365 days a year, we fight here at New Abolitionist Radio for all of the people, the men, women, children. doesn't matter your sex or race. Slavery is wrong, and it's a matter of justice. But when it comes to the kids, we need to make them a priority. Right. Thanks again for being here tonight, David Michael. We appreciate your time and efforts brother and we uh, will continue to support and if you need us feel free to always reach out all right all right no problem um if anybody wants to uh you know reach out that's listening you can always uh look look up on our social medias miami save the kids or uh save the kids and you can message me or one of the other brothers and sisters that are part of the group and we'll be in contact with you Word. God bless. All right, You're peace to, to you, bro. Abolitionist Radio right. with Max Parthas, Johanna Nalaya, Scotty Reed. That was our guest, David Michael. We'll be right back after these messages. Oh, I'm not a writer. Okay. Black Talk Radio since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Um, did we lose Max? Okay, looks like Max got muted somehow. Okay, Max, we got there you. Goes, there he is. Sorry about that. You had me muted there, and I had muted myself earlier, so I didn't even get to say a proper goodbye to uh, David Michael. But I uh, appreciate him coming and spending his time with us here tonight and look forward to talking to him further. We'd like to give you some updates on what's going on with the Alabama prison strike as well as the national strike, just as far as we know. If you have any information, feel free to call us here at New Abolitionist Radio. If you're already on the line, just press star six and one to queue up the conference line. If not, it's 641-715-3660. I saw an interview on PBS on Democracy Now! recently with Reverend Kinetic Justice 
uh, did an interview, and everything about that interview kind of blew my mind. The idea that he was giving an interview from isolation. He was in solitary confinement at the time he was giving the interview. He was in solitary confinement as part of a retributive strike, which included what they call bird feeding or starving the prisoners or putting and also putting them in solitary confinement for organizing a prison work strike in Alabama in a place that has almost 200% occupancy in its prisons in inhumane conditions and a workforce that they're exploiting for free. So hearing him do this on Democracy Now! was kind of mind-blowing. And what he was talking about, indeed mentioning it as modern-day slavery and human trafficking, from a first-person perspective, and pointing out also the 13th Amendment Exception Clause, which Brother David Michael was talking about a little earlier, which says, except for prisoners duly convicted. Uh, did you guys get a chance to see the interview? I saw it posted on the Free Alabama page, but I haven't watched the whole thing yet. It's uh I mean you hit it on the head though from what I understand is, is going on with it. I mean, just the fact that he even gave that interview is I mean, that's that's heavy, man. That's heavy. They they are putting their lives on the line. You on know? The line. It's like it can't be any more any more desperate. I mean, there's nobody that's got their back against the wall literally more that's the that's the end of the line right there i mean up to somebody that just dies in custody or get you know gets murdered in custody but that that's the very next step there's there's no more desperate situation it's as just, he says we are in a struggle for our lives they know exactly what they're dealing with it's happening to them they're not on the outside reading studies and looking in you know, they're not surmising based on what people told them. They're right there every day doing the jobs, sleeping right next to each other in a facility built uh, that, that is holding twice as many people as it was built to function with. They're the ones suffering right now, being starved and brutalized and tortured because we know that solitary confinement is torture. The United Nations and everybody else has agreed this is torture, and you, they're torturing these men. I'm so afraid for their lives right now because we know in Alabama, one of the most racist states in the nation, people will die in these prisons. Hmm. Florida, Florida's had uh, nearly 3,000 in the last 15 years died in custody. All of these states, Mississippi has had dozens and dozens recently. We talked about Arizona a couple of weeks ago, lost the ACLU uh, lawsuit for 30, 36,000 uh, prisoners throughout the state, and they've had, you know, nearly 100 murders or deaths in custody. Um, and as we followed up on that story, you know, the ACLU won that judgment last year, and it was however many millions of dollars or whatever, and then, of course, there's different stipulations that the, uh, the state, you know, one of them being the state, says that they do not admit to anything that they've done that's wrong, even though they're paying out, you know, taxpayers paying this big fine or whatever. But as we followed up on it, nothing has even changed. Nothing has changed. Same administration, same everything. No staff, no medical staff, people still dying. I mean, nothing has changed, and that's the highest court, you know, that's the highest court proceeding we've had is the lawsuit that was successfully won against the State Department of Corrections, and here we are a year later, and nothing has changed. I'd like to read some of the things that he said in the transcript from the interview with Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! Uh, Amy Goodman said, can you talk about how it is, Connecticut Justice, that you were speaking to us from inside solitary confinement, sort of redefining cell phone? Um, I guess the pun was intended. 
And Kinetic said, actually, we are engaged in a struggle for our life, a freedom struggle with the conditions and so forth, and in all means, a war, you know, warfare. You use what tools are available to you. And in this struggle for freedom, justice, and equality, we're doing just that. We're using every tool available to us to get the maximized effect. As I said, there's nobody with the foot on their neck heavier. I mean, it's, honestly, in the, in the whole country, I mean, this is the this is ground zero of the slave fight. These, I mean, imagine these are the modern slaves. We agree, these are slaves. You go back 1700 or something that somehow could communicate with us, the so-called in the north, I guess you would say, or the the free folks that's out here, and letting us know what's going on on the plantation. So you know, if there are any that are just passive that are listening. Um, I mean, you know, this is the this is what's going on. I mean, I just don't understand how people don't see that connection. These are the slaves. So the beatings, the starvation, the nakedness, the rape, the the terrorization and torture, and and the the hopelessness of being locked in and then forced into that slave labor every day. Like, do you think this is some kind of way more? I don't know, uh, acceptable. Yes, first-hand perspective, brother. And, you know, there's more information that I just put up on the New Abolitionist Radio Facebook page from our friends over at uh, IWW, the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, and they gave us several links uh, that also give you more information regarding these national prison work strikes. One of them is the... Uh, you see, it's the NLG endorsement of the September 9th call for national prisoner strike. So the National Lawyers Guild not only is talking about the 13th Amendment exception clause, but endorses a national prison work strike. These people are fighting for their lives, and these prisons can't run without them. They're not your maids or your employees. They're your prisoners. You hunted them. Most of them you didn't even give a trial to. You just plea bargained them into a cell, and then you're holding them there mostly for hostage. They're not there to sweep the floors, make the dinners, make the beds, sew up the clothes, work at Verizon's call centers, work at uh, Whole Foods, make prison uniforms or McDonald's uniforms or Burger King's uniforms. They're prisoners. And when they stop doing all those things that you're making money on off their back, those prisons are going to fall inward. That's one of the tortures that they committed upon the people who are uh, striking out is they refuse to clean anything. The guards, the facilities, not taking out the trash, not doing any laundry. None of the things that the prisoners were doing for free or for pennies on the dollar prior to that. Indeed, sir. Indeed, indeed. I, I just need people to take this seriously, man. I definitely don't want to be no Solomon Northrop just waiting for it to be me before I suddenly care. You know, uh, if, how do people not wake up to this? People are dying. These, these are the people that. I mean, uh, what's the brother, uh, um, uh, Ray, uh, the rent that was basically the face of it? Uh, what was it? Two years ago now, when they uh, were doing it last time, they had the cell phone camera and, and videotaped. Uh, you know, I think it was maybe seven or seven minutes or so, uh, telling us the same kind of message. You know, as, as they are now. 
and um, the the medical reports on him, uh, Melvin Ray, the medical reports on him was that uh, he had been poisoned mm-hmm. uh, and uh, was definitely in solitary confinement, you know, total lockdown, and I'm sure he took his share of beatings or whatever too, but you know, this is, like you said, this is they're risking their lives. They're risk, risking their lives. Now, yeah, but, yeah, but guys, let me Alabama. Let, let me, Scotty, hold on. What you, you say, bro? Well, I was just saying, though, where is the so-called, you know, this is a hypothetical, of course. I already know the answer. But you think about as long as this strike been going on in Alabama and Texas, I've yet to hear a mainstream media corporate report on it at all. Not on ABC News Nightly, not on CNN, not on MSNBC, not on Fox. Not on PBS. Not on nothing. Not on NPR. Except for black that is happening, Scotty, is Facebook is now working with the feds to find prisoners' Facebook pages and delete and block them. I was speaking with one of the people from uh, IWW, uh, I believe it was Brianna recently, who was telling me that they deleted Kinetic's Facebook page that day. (laughs) That day. Well, that's why I'm working on a Facebook-like uh, community for Black Talk Radio. They certainly will be welcome, and the FBI can kiss my ass. <laughs> speaking of those, that phrase, speaking of that phrase, I, I want to throw that one in there too. And we're speaking about sometimes codification. And I'm going to continue on the Alabama story. You're saying who's doing what? Well, this is a top civil rights lawyer in Alabama. His name is uh, Brian Stevenson, and he is the founder of uh, he is the pre- founder of the Equal Justice Initiative out in Alabama. He's uh, an outspoken, uh, I believe he's a prison abolitionist uh, primarily, but outspoken about criminal justice, and he tells it like it is normally. He recently had an interview also, I believe, on PBS or one of these stations. I'll get the information for you. And I'd like to play the interview that he had and then talk about it a little bit particularly some of the things he said, extremely profound. But there was one area where he changed his narrative to fit the presentation. And I want to see how you guys felt about that. Scotty, are you able to pull that one up? I've got it on the new abolitionist page. Give me just a second to get there. Johanan, uh, when you're not speaking, if you can, mute yourself because we're getting feedback whenever Max is talking. I, I don't know what that is. Okay, so uh, top civil rights lawyer says U.S. criminal justice reforms are falling short. Uh, give me yes, just sir, a that's second. The one. All right, it's coming up. Give me just a moment. Um, it should be starting any moment. Let's see. Uh, this just is to Brian. FYI, Brian Stevenson and Equal Justice Initiative were just recipients of million dollars that they got from Google to help with their fight. All right, here we go. It's the latest installment in our series, Broken Justice, about new approaches to criminal justice. Tonight, we have a conversation with a noted lawyer and author on questions of sentencing, overcrowding in prisons, and whether a series of changes around the country go far enough. Jeffrey Brown traveled to Alabama for our report. The Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama, a nonprofit founded in 1989 by lawyer and civil rights activist Brian Stevenson to represent death row prisoners and indigent and juvenile defendants who he argues have been denied effective representation, often due to racial bias. 
In recent years, which included the publication of an acclaimed memoir, Just Mercy, Stevenson has become a leading voice nationally for criminal justice reform. I met him at his office in Montgomery while reporting on Alabama's overcrowded prisons and spike in prison violence. There were less than 5,000 people in Alabama's prisons throughout most of the 1970s. And then you had politicians, like you had all over the country, get uh, captivated, I'm going to say intoxicated, by the politics of fear. Intoxicated. Yes, intoxicated by the politics of fear and anger. They began competing with each other over who could be the toughest on crime. And putting people in prison became the solution to virtually every problem. Drug addiction and drug dependency, which could have been seen as a health issue, was seen as a crime issue. The growing freedom that was emerging in the Deep South for African Americans who until just a decade earlier couldn't vote, couldn't go into schools, had to be regulated, and so we used the criminal justice system and you saw this massive increase and the number of people sent to jails or prisons. So we went from about 5,000 people in the 1970s to 30,000 people today. And in a state with about 4.5 million people, that's an unbelievably high rate of incarceration. But you're seeing this, you're seeing our incarceration system as a continuation of slavery, of a history of racial injustice in the country. Well, I, I think it's a continuation of using crime narrative to control social and political dynamics that can't be controlled in more legitimate ways. And we created this so-called war on drugs and we targeted people of color and we got everybody to buy into the fact that if we don't put these dangerous people into jails and prisons, we are none safe. And that's how we went nationwide from a prison population of about 300,000 in the 1970s to 2.3 million today. And now we have the highest rate of incarceration in the world. And here in Alabama, an extreme model of it. Exactly. And it's rooted in this comfort level with reducing people to their worst act and acting in very extreme, harsh, punitive ways. I mean, a state that was shaped by lynching as a response to things like interracial sex or organizing for share, better sharecropping conditions, to use lynching, uh, calling these people criminals, uh, has created a culture, an environment, where then putting people in prison for life with no chance of parole for writing a bad check or being in possession of marijuana didn't seem so radical. Last year, Alabama's Republican legislature and governor passed a law to reform some of the state's sentencing guidelines and increase probation and parole supervision. Stevenson believes such measures here and elsewhere don't go nearly far enough. I think people realize that we're spending way too much money on uh, jails and prisons. And I think that's true in Alabama, it's true nationwide. We went from $6 billion spent on jails and prisons in the United States in 1980 to $80 billion last year. And the recession was terrible for everybody for everything except criminal justice reform. Because all of a sudden, state legislators had to start asking harder questions about why we're spending so much money to keep people in jail or prison who are not a threat to public safety. And you think it's more a concern out of, out of money than, than anything else that is leading to whatever t discussion there is about change? Well, I think that's the primary motivation. I do. Uh, if we were a more affluent state, if we had more resources, I don't think we'd have the same interest. Too many people in this state, too many people in this country don't care if people who are in jails or prisons are abused. They don't care if they're raped. They don't care. If they are murdered, they don't care if they're assaulted. They don't care about their victimization. 
And because of that, we haven't responded the way a just society, a decent society, is supposed to respond when you see abuse and murder and rape and misconduct. So if you had your opportunity, given where, where things are at right now, what is, what is the one, what's the most important thing that needs to happen? I, I, can I do two? Okay. <laughs> I, I'll, I, the two things that I would do, uh, I would commit to, re, to uh, re, reducing the prison population by 5,000 5, people. Just put out an arbitrary number like that. Where going, do those people go? They will go home. We have 5,000 people in our jails and prisons that could go home tomorrow uh, that would not in any way threaten public safety. And you know who could help us identify those 5,000? Are the wardens at these prisons. If you said to any warden in the state of Alabama, can you identify 50, 100, 200 people in your prison who you think could go home tomorrow and would not create a problem? Most of them would do it in a heartbeat. We could get to that 5,000 number just like that. And then we could take the money we save, the significant money that we save, and invest in better caregiving, better management. You have to have people running prisons that care about the incarcerated, that are smart, that aren't bullies, that aren't reactionary, that uh, aren't kind of uh, vindictive, and then you could begin to see improved conditions. Are you more optimistic nationally when you look at the large picture? I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, but, but, but punishment is a local issue. And the national discourse will only have an impact on places like Alabama if people in Alabama step up. But I am generally hopeful. I don't think it's going to happen by itself. And what I'm worried about is that Congress might pass a few reforms. We might see reforms here and there. And we're going to declare victory. And three years from now, the prison population will have decreased by 1%. And we'll still be the most punitive nation on the planet. Stevenson now has a broader educational project underway, erecting markers to remind people of a history often ignored. And his group is collecting samples of earth from the sites of lynchings, with an aim toward creating memorials around the state. I asked Stevenson what drives him. Well, I think when you see what I see, you don't have a choice. I mean, I, I think if most people saw what I see, they'd have the same instinct, they'd have the same idea that we have to fix this. Because it's unconscionable. We have kids, uh, 15 and 16-year-old kids, that we are still putting in adult jails and prisons in Alabama. And what happens to those children is that they get abused, they get assaulted. And I don't think there's a decent person watching this program uh, that if they saw that, wouldn't feel like, we've got to stop that. From Montgomery, Alabama, I'm Jeffrey Brown for the PBS NewsHour. Man, I've got the transcript in front of me. I put the uh, link on New Abolitionist Radio so our listeners can see the transcript. There was, you know, I agree with just about everything he said, maybe 95%. I mean, I could add on to what he said. He said people who aren't bullies, who aren't vindictive. Um, how about not being racist, not being rapists and, and predators and and right. all of that? Right. You know what I'm saying? And then for him to, you know, when he says that um, if if people watching this program, if they know these things, then they will be forced to change no a lot of these people know these things and they don't give a damn like he said in the beginning 
you know, he was talking about most people just don't care. And they don't, man. You could, man, you could hit somebody in the face. Look, Hillary Clinton is a perfect example. How can anybody support someone with a record of supporting modern-day slavery and human trafficking like that woman has? And, and, and just on that issue alone and think that she's going to turn around and she's going to be the solution to the problem that her and her husband helped create. They didn't start the problem, but they sure advanced it a whole lot during his administration. So uh, most people, in my opinion, they don't care. When I listen to so-called educated Negroes talk about all these people want free college, like that's a doggone bad thing or something like that. Again, some of these people, they need the poor people. They need the slaves in order to feel good about themselves. Mm. Are you having any thoughts on what you heard, brother? Well, I mean, where Scotty picked up is something that definitely caught my attention as well. Um, just, you know, when he started speaking about the, you know, the 5,000. And, you know, he had to end it with, uh, with admitting that, you know, that at the end of the day, that ain't going to be a drop in the bucket. But he feels confident we could get at least that. So, I mean, I can't go against him saying it. Um, but... I mean, I guess the value of it would be to show just how insultingly, you know, pathetic that type of a gesture would even be. I mean, what effect that would not, you know, have on a 2.5 million. Um, so, I, I, but I don't know if that's where he was coming from, you know, when he was saying it like this. So, that 5,000 number hit me. Then talking about like what Scotty said with, you know, what kind of person we need to have running it. Look, there's no way around it. The people that own it. And the shareholders that benefit from it, the politicians that that reap, who knows what kind of benefits off of, you know, straight up, I guess, pallets full of money in some cases. I mean, who knows? Yeah, they make a a Johanna, the the Vanguard uh, 500 index fund. You know, we we were talking about it earlier. I put out a video showing um, Hillary Clinton's. Um, who has anywhere uh, they say up to 25 million invested in this one particular for- firm or fund uh, through the Vanguard and I mean all those companies man that we are familiar with with using slave labor or investing in private prisons they are all in her her portfolio man hmm. there you go so who's going to be in control of, of like what he was saying you know, choosing who's over this and who's watching that and who's this and who's that. I mean, how do you think that those people are going to be hired? How do you, who do you think is going to be in decision-making capacity for that? All the people that benefit from it. No, they're not about to have nobody in there with no damn unicorns and rainbows and talk about how we're going to re- rehabilitate. No. It's, it's, I just don't, I don't know. He's speaking what he's speaking, but he's not in, in, in reality ultimately. Yeah, because I don't see any wardens. That I I want to make note of. The two things that he said that I didn't disagree with. And they say he's the lead spokesperson for this movement, okay? The first thing, of course, was when he was confronted with a simple question. Jeffrey Brown said, but you're seeing this. You're seeing our incarceration system as a continuation of slavery, of a history of racial injustice in the country. And instead of simply saying yes, and then connecting the dots, 
And I know he's connected the dots because I can link the video where he connected the dots to show you how it went from slavery to mass incarceration. Instead of simply saying yes, he avoided the answer altogether and said, well, I think it's a continuation of using crime narrative to control social political dynamics that can't be controlled in more legitimate ways. See, that's a political codified answer. And then the other thing is when he, I mean, just first of all, that. Because we want to get people to look at this as slavery so they can act differently than they're acting now because the way they're acting now is getting us nowhere. We need to look at this in a different way. So when given the opportunity to put that on the table, he wouldn't do it, but he would use the word lynching. Like, you can talk about lynching, but you can't say slavery. I don't understand those two minds. Because lynching, I'm sorry, Max, lynching, like slavery, has been so-called abolished but they know it hasn't. But lynching, this you know, federal laws against it. So lynching has been like by the law. I think this is codified to that to that level. That, that there won't be anything on the record said that that conflicts with what the law in place allows. You see what I'm getting at? Yes. He's speaking on that kind of level, I think. Yes, yeah, he's codifying his language. He, that's what his, I, I know what he's doing, and I've been told by people that I should do the same thing, but I don't plan on doing that. The other thing that got to me is when he was asked what he could uh, suggest, what was the most important thing he could think of to make a change, and he said there were two things, and one, of course, which he discussed was to reduce the population by 5,000. Well, 5,000 men who could, a warden who said, you could let them go home today and they wouldn't be bothering nobody, are innocent men probably to begin with. They shouldn't be in there anyway. That's why the wardens wouldn't let them go. Like, dude, all he did was write a bad check 15 years ago. All he did was have some weed in his pocket on his third strike, maybe five hours worth of weed, and now he's in here for the next 25 years. Those people could, should be let go regardless. And every one of them in Alabama is worth approximately around $40,000 that's $200 million a year. I'll be damned if I'm interested in spending that $200 million on more guards and more police and more specialists and better prisons. You pay for it. They're your prisoners. And that all- money can go to helping the communities that you decimated by putting innocent men in prison to begin with. And I hardly see any wardens interested in har- harming their job security. <laughs> by ident- I, I, I mean, it, it's possible because in the case of the Move 9, um, uh, of course, they're no longer the Move 9, but the Move family that, um, you know, suffered that horrific bombing by the uh, Philadelphia police but ended up going to prison. Well, all the prison staff recommend these people for promotion, I mean, for parole, but, you know, uh, the parole board, uh, won't let them go. So I, I do have to make sure I'm dealing in facts. I have seen one instance in that, but I feel like that's the exception to the rule. I don't see many wardens today speaking out on, well, we need to do this and we need to do that in order, you know, to uh, get this under control. I just don't see them, you know, uh, participating because they rely on those people's bodies for their job security and whatnot. If you were a warden with any morals, you would have said, you look, we're at 100% capacity. We're not right. taking any more prisons. Right, prisoners. we're shutting the doors. We're all the way up to 200%. Yeah, like you have no limit. We're shutting the doors. We're over capacity. Uh, I don't want the fire marshal coming after us. You know what I'm saying? You're right, Max. Yeah. 
And, and that was the other thing that Brian Stevenson appealed to, and I've been told I should do that too, is to be appeal to the economic aspect, to codify my language, but I'm just tired of that. I just don't feel comfortable saying to somebody, please release my family members who are innocent and my people who are innocent because it will save you money in the long run. Well, release I understand them because that. they're innocent. Release but, them because you're monsters exploiting human beings in a slave trade. But I, Not because it's going to save you money. I just don't feel comfortable with that. So I'm going to stick to my narrative. Slavery is wrong and it needs to end. It's immoral. It's unethical. It's illegal. It needs to be abolished, period. Regardless of how much money you make or save, it doesn't matter. It's not about money. It's about human lives. Well, I understand that, Max, and I'm not disagreeing with you, but I also understand how politics work. And if you need Republican support, conservative, fiscal conservative support, you have to tailor your message for your audience. You can still make the point that this slavery is bankrupting the state or this slavery is bankrupting the federal government and whatnot. So I I, I understand the tactic of knowing your audience and what arguments are going to persuade them because a racist is not going to be persuaded by arguments that, you know, blacks are disproportionately uh, imprisoned and whites. A racist don't care. He probably be like, that's good. How can we right. get and even they, more of them? If so, they don't care about human life, they'll care about money even less. Some messages are not for you. Some messages are about you. That's how I look at these people. I, I, you know, I'm like William Lloyd Garrison. I just don't think that we can negotiate with slavers. We need to stop tailoring our argument to fit the narrative of the very criminals who are doing it to us. Well, I'm, of course, talking about a nonviolent, uh, going about it nonviolently. You know, again, if you're going to work within the constructs of the system, you got to tailor your argument to your audience. If you <laughs> right, trying right, to get right. okay, I understand, Scotty. I'm with it. I agree. I've even told a friend of mine recently that I, I would even su- I support those type of arguments. I've even done it myself, along with you and Johanan. We have unveiled statistics and numbers on an economic level here that have blown people's freaking minds, like the $350,000 a year price tag in New York State, like the rate of incarceration uh, for blacks versus whites state by state. We've blown their minds with how much money California spends alone with a near $11 billion a year budget for the Department of Corrections. But those arguments are not for me. I'm just saying, for me personally, I feel weird saying you should let my people go because you'll save money in the long run. It's not a Geico commercial to me. Those are people who are dying and being raped and abused and brutalized and exploited, and I don't care if you save money or not. Let them go. Well, I subscribe to the Malcolm X philosophy by any means necessary. If I got to lie, steal, kill, whatever. To get to yes, free, yes. and I'll do I'm whatever. I'm with you on that, brother. Well, we, we, I think we're over our, our commercial break. You want to take that and then come back and finish up with our, our um, final segments and final statements? Sure, sure, sure. All right, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio here with Scotty Reed, Johanna Elia, and Max Parthas. Sometimes it gets passionate because it's about life and death and freedom and slavery. We'll be right back after these messages. The Black Talk Radio Network is made possible in part with help from the Black Talk Media Project. 
a North Carolina-based nonprofit engaged in the production and distribution of independent digital black media. Find out more by going to blacktalkradionetwork.com or blacktalkmediaproject.org and look for the menu tab, Crowdfunding Black Media. Black Talk Media Project, helping to provide you with new black media for the new millennium. Tuned in to Black Talk Radio, new black media for the new millennium. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get into our next stories, which is a tale of two jails and two young deaths. Uh, two people, one, I believe, 22, a 22-year-old woman and a 24-year-old man. Very different stories in different locations. Uh, it's just the way that things are flowing with these two stories that I've seen and have seen repeatedly in cases like this, where you really don't understand why one story stands out beyond another. For instance, the first story comes from the Daily News, and uh, Sean King, I believe, is the writer, and the title says, Beautiful 22-Year-Old Mother Simone Marshall Dies in Texas Police Custody After Weeks of Neglect. Uh, so apparently this young 22-year-old beautiful woman was in prison and she died after neglect and he you know, went into the story in very little detail. It doesn't say too much about what's going on, uh, but it did say that nobody in media was addressing the circumstances. So I shared that and it immediately took off. People sent it all over the place. Then another story that I shared immediately after that one was uh, out of Virginia, where a young man, 24 years old, who was arrested on allegations of stealing about $5.05 worth of candy, was literally starved to death. Uh, someone who is dealing with mental disabilities, apparently, the guards decided that uh, they would just starve him to death in prison. And it goes into great detail with a video to go with it and everything. And I think he got one share. And I, I don't understand that. I, I don't understand how we value the one life over the other when it's the same thing occurring to us. What do you guys think? Or am I just overly overthinking all of this? Anybody home? Um... I was actually trying to prepare for the next program, so I apologize, man. Um, if you could just... Um, so we're talking about the uh, story about the two jails and the deaths. Um, right, the two jails that is going on, uh, the, the one in Virginia and the other one, uh, I forget where it is, I'm looking it up right now. There's been a few of them uh, in the past couple of weeks or, or around the country. Um, and what was your question again, Max? Well, it, it seems like for me personally, and I'm a source of media uh, information, you know, I put things out a lot, and I put these out back to back, literally, one above the other. And the one got, you know, into the hundreds of shares. Uh, apparently, people are very concerned about the, which they should be, the young woman who had a three-year-old daughter who died in this 
Jackson, this Walker County Jail in Huntsville, yeah. Texas. Yeah, right? I saw and, that story. And I was north of Houston. But the other story about the young 24-year-old man uh, who had uh, mental disabilities and was starved to death, nobody acted like they really cared. Like, it didn't get any shares. And yeah. I'm trying to understand how that comes to be. Well, I was about to say one of the things I noticed um, from that story about the young mother um, uh, being found dead in a jail is I was like, why are y'all commenting on what she looks like? You know, talking about pretty young woman, you know, like, you know, I'm like, you know, what, what does, what does her facial features or whether she's pretty or ugly, what does that have to do with the story? So I think that, you know, in a, uh, in a superficial way, that's why that story got more attention than, the uh, mentally handicapped man who was starred to death. I think it was very superficial. I think it was just as superficial as the other article that recently came out which talked about child poverty and which said how blacks dominate child poverty uh, but yet had a picture of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed little white girl uh, in a position of poverty. I saw that too. That was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, It's a narrative and it's it's how things are being portrayed is very superficial. Uh, because she's beautiful, she requires more concern. Is that what the narrative here is? I don't understand that. Maybe Sean King can come out one day and help explain something like that to us. But then it's not even his fault so much as it is. I'm wondering why everybody else grabbed onto that so readily. You know what I mean? The, it, it, they're both heartbreaking stories, both of them. So what made you pick one over the other? I don't know. Anyway. Johanna, any, any words about that? I mean, really nothing beyond what we've already said. I mean, we know what the narrative is, like you just said. So, the, the you know, people have to support the truth tellers. People have to come out and support with their pocketbooks, you know, with their voices, I mean, with their relationships that they have to, to be telling these kind of stories and telling the truth. So it doesn't, it begins to not matter what the propaganda machine that's larger than us tries to do because we're telling more stories all the time of the truth so that's the only way we can compete with their methods that they use I mean they're programming people to not care and like you just said about the strikes like we just talked about with the last story I mean just on and on it's like people are programmed to not care so it even goes down to the children and the poverty like you just said I mean even with the little white kid on the on the cover of the story it's still people are programmed to not care so the only thing we can do is tell the stories ourselves. I don't want to overshadow the, the, the real stories behind both of these. Is One is that this young woman was in an accident, and instead of being taken to the hospital, she was taken to prison or to jail. And there she was allowed to die a slow death over the course of weeks. And in the other instance, it was a young man accused of stealing $5 worth of sweets and sodas who was diagnosed as delusional and psychotic before he went in and was thrown into a jail cell for four whole months and allowed to starve to death. Those two things happened, and they are happening far too often in our society now. For every one person that you're aware of that police kill, at least four are killed in jails and prisons by the same type of law officers where there are very little cameras.
It all starts with the 13th, y'all. It all starts with the 13th. That's where we can apply pressure, legislative pressure, yes. to make actual changes. Knock down a domino and let's take this whole thing out. That's that's the plan, man. Start knocking them down domino by domino. Well, we need to get into our, our final segments, I guess. And the first one coming up uh, will be our 21st century rider of the Underground Railroad. And this week... Um, we have someone who just recently got out of prison from Baltimore. Uh, it's a story from The Guardian, and it's Malcolm Jabbar Bryant, who was convicted for a 1998 stabbing death of a teenager. And DNA evidence from the victim now has revealed the rare identifier that did not match Bryant. So it couldn't have been him. 17 years in prison for murder he did not commit. Again, from The Guardian. Baltimore man has been exonerated after spending 17 years in prison for murder and new DNA evidence shows he didn't commit. Malcolm Jabbar Bryant was arrested in 98 when a single eyewitness identified him as the man who stabbed 16-year-old Tony Barstale to death. Bryant and his family always maintained his innocence. Bryant eventually exhausted all of his appeals and tried several different post-conviction procedures. Michael Nethercott for the University of Baltimore's Innocence Project took up Bryant's case eight years ago and eventually obtained court orders to test the victim's fingernail clippings and t-shirt for DNA, which happened to have a rare identifier that was not consistent with Bryant's. The DNA is in fact the killer's DNA, and the DNA does not match Malcolm Bryant, said Laura Lipscomb, the head of the state's attorney's Office of Conviction and Integrity, in a court proceeding on Wednesday. When Lipscomb said the state would join Bryant's attorney in asking for a new trial and indicated that the state would not bring charges on any of the counts against Bryant, someone in the courtroom yelled, Hallelujah! Bryant, who will not be released from prison until later in the week, rubbed his face as he was led from the courtroom, still in chains. It's been a horror, said Annie Bryant, his mother, outside the courtroom. I'm overjoyed. In a press conference following the court proceedings, State Attorney Marilyn Mosby stood with Nethercott Lipscomb, the police commissioner, Kevin Davis, and several investigators. On behalf of the criminal justice system, I'd like to apologize, she said. Mosby was addressed, also addressed the family of the victim, which chose to embrace today's outcome with an open heart and an open mind. Their daughter is not forgotten, she said, promising to work with police department to find Barstale's killer. She also pledged that her office conviction integrity union would continue to review every petition of innocence. We here at New Abolitionist, Abolitionist Radio salute you, brother. Welcome to Freedom. Salute. And also salute to uh, Sister Marilyn Mosby up there. Welcome to the Abolitionist Movement, sister. Not that you haven't already been active. Right, you right. Kind of, you kind of came out with this one, so, you know, welcome aboard. Yo, board. if you can view a lot of these cages, that's, an, that's the Underground Railroad. Right. <laughs> but you right. can do it. That's why I said when we were talking about Obama doing that with his commutations, to a degree he is an abolitionist because he's getting... Uh, he's gotten people free from those prisons. Not as many as he could. We all agree on that. But he did get some. No, he ain't no abolitionist. He's a reformer. You can't give it to his guy. No, hell no. Walker free might feel differently. Hell no. No, he ain't no abolitionist. He don't even consider himself an abolitionist. He doesn't even acknowledge slavery. I mean, to me, 
my criteria, you have to first acknowledge that slavery has never been abolished. You have to well, be aware that. of what the 13th... He did that. Who? Barack we, Obama did it. I have it on video where he gave a, a lecture to some students. Or actually, No, Max, I saw that lecture. I saw that lecture. He yeah, was and simply... He about the third, not the 13th Amendment, but the Emancipation Proclamation. That's what he was, was talking about. He was talking about the Emancipation Proclamation and how Lincoln uh, would do anything to keep the Union together and how, you know, it did not free all the slaves because it wasn't about ending slavery. It was about keeping the Union together. But in no time right. did he... he no time did I hear him read the 13th Amendment at no time did he point out the exception clause to those college students and so no he ain't no abolitionist just because we put put pressure on people to force them to do something what's that? I think my point that I'm making is that he knows what's going on He's but he ain't no abolitionist that's my point and, and I think what I mentioned that part is that he was performing the acts of an abolitionist even though he may not be one people were getting free directly because of something he had done something directly that activists made him do he ain't up and did it on his own you know what I'm saying that's just tough. like when, that's, a that's a tough call that's a tough I'll call that. I mean just like he, just, did, he did let people out but then he had his justice department suing to keep people in at the same exactly, time exactly I mean, that's like, what I was about the same to time. say so it's, just, it's just such a contradiction it's, I mean I can feel both of y'all on both sides we need to take credit for and claim every hero we can just for the propaganda power and then we can educate people more thoroughly once they get in but we got to draw them however we can. So if they want to prop up Obama, I mean, I would support uh, I would support propaganda pieces that that highlight him as an abolitionist president and ride it out. I would I would support it. I would support that rhetoric and, and having those visuals and and I mean because it'll draw people and then we can educate them properly. But at the same time, I'm with you, Scotty. He ain't did a damn thing, man. So he I actually can't. fought against us, before, and we all know it. Yeah, As a matter man. of fact, he may go down in history as creating the circumstances for the, the the real largest prison population the world has ever seen, not just in the United States. They're about to do this deal right now with this uh, this trade agreement. Yeah, where they're going to be using prison slave labor to make these goods and services. I mean, this guy does as little as possible, and everybody want to pin medals on him. You know, like he didn't end his slavery or something. Just like the juveniles in in solitary confinement, he issues this executive order. And then we kind of find out it don't even affect that many people, you know. It only affected 15 kids. He was taking all this international accolades for something that he did to affect 15 kids. While allowing adults to continue to be tortured. So I, I just, I man, I ain't got no love for that man. Yeah, I, I hear you, Scotty, and I understand your reasonings, brother. No problem at all. Um, I think it's time for us to get into our abolitionist and profile, and then finish up with our final comments for the evening. As usual, I believe this is a powerful program, and I want to thank our guest, uh, James Michael, for. Uh, David Michael for coming through tonight representing Save the Kids and the National Week Against Incarcerating the Youth. Uh, do we have any volunteers for uh, tonight's abolitionist in profile? 
I didn't know if we had it recorded or not. No, I didn't have an opportunity to record okay. it, but I got some music right. for you, though. I'm ready. Abolitionist in profile this evening is John Mercer Langston, the youngest of four children. He was born free, black in Louisa County, Virginia in 1829. Langston gained distinction as an abolitionist, politician, and attorney. Despite the prominence of his slave owner father, Ralph Quarles, Langston took his surname from his mother, Lucy Langston, an emancipated slave of Indian and black ancestry. When both parents died of, an un of unrelated illnesses in 1834, Five-year-old Langston and his older siblings were transported to Missouri, where they were taken in by William Gooch, a friend of Ralph Quarles. At 14, Langston began his studies at the preparatory department at Oberlin College. Known for its racialism and, and abolition abolitionist politics, Oberlin was the first college in the United States to admit black and white students. Langston completed his studies in 1849, becoming the fifth African-American male to graduate from Oberlin's collegiate department. In 1854, Langston married... Caroline Matilda Wall, an emancipated slave from North Carolina. She and Langston had remarkably similar backgrounds. Both had been born into slavery and were freed by their slave-owning fathers who provided them fin financially. Once freed and sent north, they were both uh, they were able to obtain an education. When Wall was a young girl, she and her sister Sarah were sent to Ohio by their father, Colonel Stephen Wall, under the guardianship of a wealthy family friend. The sister was brought up in an, an affluent Quaker household. In 1855, Langston elected town clerk Beth Brownhelm Township in Ohio becoming the first black elected official in the state. In addition to his law practice and activities as town clerk, Langston and his brothers Gideon and Charles participated in the Underground Railroad. John Mercer Langston caught the attention of Frederick Douglass, who encouraged him to deliver anti-slavery speeches. During the Civil War, Langston recruited black volunteers for the Massachusetts 54th Infantry Regiment, officially the country's first African-American military unit. In 1868, he moved to Washington, D.C. to help establish the nation's first law school at Howard University. He became his first dean and served briefly as an acting president of Howard in 1872. 1877, Rutherford B. Hayes appointed him U.S. Minister to Haiti. He returned to the U.S. in 1885 and became president of Virginia Normal College Institute. In 1888, he ran for a seat in Congress as an independent and against a white Democratic opponent. The election results were contested for 18 months, so he must have won. Langston was finally declared the winner and served the remaining six months of his term. Langston lost his re-election in 1890, partly because of his prominence. The Oklahoma Territory town of Langston and the college created in the town Langston University were named after him. John Mercer Langston died in Washington, D.C. November 15, 1897. And new abolitionist radio salutes you, sir. Salute a lot. This is how we fought slavery to force it to recreate itself. They had to go into hibernation like a butterfly of evil. <laughs> and uh, it ended up with a civil war. It ended up with a civil war. And then from that civil war, the seeds of slavery was left planted in the ground. And those seeds took root. And now we see what we have today. And the seeds were called the 13th Amendment Exception Clause. Indeed, indeed. Well, if we're closing it out, um, I'll just say, I mean, you know, because I know we're running out of time, I'll just say that uh, what you just said is basically my final thought. I mean, it just came to me when you said that about how 
what we had to do during these times. This story, I just read this long story about this man and all of this stuff he did in his life. I mean, every week we do this. There's hundreds and hundreds of these people that... I mean, it's just, it'll take you a day to, to chronicle all the things they were doing over the course of their lives to end slavery. Contrast that against what's going on today. How are we going to bring it into it? I mean, it's the same thing, so it's going to have to be the same fight. So, we have to get busy. We have to, you know, get more people aware, obviously, and then get more people that's willing to work and, and dedicate their lives to this like these people did. And that's all that's going to end it. So peace to the abolitionists and death to the oppressors. Amen. Scotty, any final comments? Um, yeah, my final comments. I just want to thank our guests again, David Michael, for joining us. And I appreciate the work that uh, you are involved in. You know, it is always gr- it, it, it. You know, we can sit up here all day long and talk about slavery and what have you. But I don't think any of us has actually been enslaved. I spent a little time in some in and out of jail, you know, when I was in the military and, and shortly after I got out the military until I had then gotten all them wild oats, you know, sold and whatnot. But I ain't never been enslaved. I ain't never been on anybody's prison plantation unless I was visiting someone. So when you have someone who has actually been in slavery and they come out and they become abolitionists, I mean, that should just really uh, just give, you know, give people uh, even more reason to pay attention to, to what this man is saying. He told you how they had him working these jobs that he might have been paid $20, $30 an hour, but he can't get those jobs here on the outside. Okay, and so again, the evil that we face today is the same evil that the abolitionists faced yesterday, and it's, that evil is it has a name, and it's slavery, and it's that simple. So let's not reform mass incarceration, but let's end slavery. Peace. Max. Okay, looks like we lost Max. I don't see him on the board. Okay, Max, I don't know. You must be muting yourself, bro. <laughs> yeah, you hung up on me for a minute. But I'm here now, man. All right, uh, I want to say thank you again to the, our guest, uh, David Michael, for coming through. Uh, once again, send our con- uh, condolences out to uh, Brother Ahmad, who lost his family. We want to wish uh, Anthony Gisela all the luck in the world and what he's trying to accomplish here with the National Week of Action Against Incarcerating the Youth. I just want to say that in the United States, nearly half of all youth, 42% to be exact, will be arrested before they turn 23 years old. Once incarcerated, a majority of them will not finish school. In the years between 1997 and 2007, Over 19,000 police were hired to patrol school grounds using the criminalization of children as a job creator. In cities like Chicago, a full quarter of youth arrests happened in the schools. This has much more further generational consequences that we still haven't seen yet. So you should always keep in mind that abolition, real abolition where we end slavery and not just convert it, is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. Peace. Rise up, rise up, rise up, rise up, rise up, rise up.
lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff, porn, and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up.